Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. When a patient presents with an acute intracranial hemorrhage or ICH, the neurocritical care guidelines recommend reversal of anticoagulation if present. But for patients not systemically anticoagulated, such as those taking antiplatelet agents or those who would be excluded from a typical ICH trial, the treatment is less clear. In the last three years, promising data has been published on the use of transexamic acid and desmopressin in ICH. Today, Dr. Aaron Vyrashevsky, an ED and neurology ICU pharmacist, helps us navigate this acute situation. I'm really excited to talk to you guys about one of my favorite topics, intracranial hemorrhage. As an emergency medicine pharmacist with an interest in neurocritical care, this is one of my favorite topics, and I'm going to spend the next 40 minutes talking about some areas in this uh, in neurocritical care that aren't necessarily black and white. There's a lot of gray areas for the management of these patients, but hopefully by the end of the presentation, we'll have some clinical pearls for the management of these complex patients. So I want to start with a patient case. You get a page for when you're working in the emergency department for a level red 14 trauma. and the ETA, they're going to be here in five minutes. And that means that this patient is coming in with a head bleed on blood thinners. So you take a look at the patient's MRN on the ambulance board and you try to gather as much information as possible before heading into the trauma bay. You look up their home medication list and you can't find any anticoagulants. You only see dual antiplatelet therapy listed. So you go into the trauma bay, everyone's preparing to resuscitate this patient, and it turns out they are actually only on clopidogrel and aspirin. And by that point, the team is not as interested in their head bleed because they are only on clopidogrel and aspirin. And this is pretty common. But that, should that be the case? Should we be more concerned about these patients, even if they aren't on anticoagulants? Just because they're not on an anticoagulant and we're not preparing prothrombin complex concentrate or indexnet alpha for these patients, maybe there is some other life-saving medication that we need to be prepared to give for these patients. And that's going to be the focus of our discussion today. So today we're going to start by describing the goals of treatment for intracranial hemorrhage patients. And then we're going to dive into some literature examining the use of two alternative agents, desmopressin and tranexamic acid for intracranial hemorrhage. And by the end of the discussion, I would hope that we can identify appropriate patients to receive each of these treatments. So we'll start with our first poll everywhere question. So go to pull out your tablets or your phones and answer the question, or go to pollev.com slash mayorx, or alternatively, you can text mayorx to 22333. So the first question is, which of the following is not associated with hematoma expansion and intracranial hemorrhage? I just want to test everyone's baseline knowledge of the management of an intracranial hemorrhage. Okay, I would agree with the majority of the patients. The correct answer is low blood pressure. It would be incorrect because male patients are actually at higher risk of hematoma expansion, most likely based on some non-modifiable risk factors associated with male gender. B and C are incorrect because anticoagulation use and antiplatelet use are highly associated with, the, with hematoma expansion and should be reversed if possible. And then low blood pressure is correct because it, uh, 
Hypertension is one of our modifiable risk factors that we should be assessing and correcting in our initial resuscitation of patients with intracranial hemorrhage. So when we have a patient that comes into the recess bay with a potential intracranial hemorrhage, we assess them and manage them like we would many other critically ill patients. And that starts with our ABCs. We assess and hard stop and fix any of issues with airway, breathing, or circulation first, followed quickly by a focused neurologic exam, including a Glasgow Coma Scale, which is a quick assessment of eyes, motor, and verbal uh, neurologic assessment, and then an NIH stroke scale to assess for any uh, acute deficits, followed quickly by getting to the CT scanner to definitively know whether we have an intracranial hemorrhage or not. Management of intracranial hemorrhages are focused at decreasing hematoma expansion, and that can be with pharmacologic agents or non-pharmacologic agents. And that includes hypertension management in our patients who are hypertensive with IV antihypertensives, or hyperosmolar therapy in patients who have elevated intracranial pressures. Some patients are surgical candidates for decompression, so taking off a piece of the skull to give the brain room to swell or placing a monitor to see if they do have high elevated ICPs. Patients who are on anticoagulants, we can reverse it with prothrombin complex concentrate or even indexnet alpha if they're on an anti-10A inhibitor. And then the administration of platelets is controversial, but indicated in some patients who have multi-trauma or who would be going to the OR. And then there is the alternative to give some additional agents, including desmopressin and tranexamic acid, which will be the focus of our presentation today. So antiplatelets are very commonly used in the United States. Over 70%, over 50% of patients over the age of 70 do take aspirin on a daily basis, many of which do not have a cardiovascular indication for it. And the chronic use of it is not benign. Many patients have an increased risk of intracranial hemorrhage with an increased need for emergical surgical evacuation of their bleeds and an increased risk of mortality if they do go on to develop an intracranial hemorrhage. So we need to have something in our uh, toolkit to reverse these patients when they come in with an intracranial hemorrhage. It would be intuitive to give someone activated platelets if they are on uh, an antiplatelet therapy with a platelet transfusion. And that was the goal of the PATCH trial in 2016. This was a multi-center open-label trial of platelet transfusion versus standard care for patients who came in with spontaneous ICH. They included 190 patients, and they were randomized to get platelets versus a transfusion. They excluded patients who had traumatic bleeds or patients who were going to the OR and patients with severe uh, neurologic deficit with a GCS of less than 8. Their primary outcome was death or dependence on a modified Rankin scale at 90 days. And we'll see this modified Rankin scale as a common outcome in a lot of our studies today. And it is a measure of functional outcome, and a zero on the modified Rankin scale would be pretty much everyone in this room. You can do all of your daily activities without any assistance from anyone else. A five would be that you're completely dependent on someone else for all of your daily activities, and six correlates with death. So what they found in this study was that it heavily favored placebo. The patients who received platelet transfusion had a two times higher rate of death or dependence at 90 days. They had increased hospital mortality and an increased serious adverse events such as cerebral edema and hematoma expansion on CT. While it's not entirely clear the relationship between platelet transfusion and all of these adverse effects, it's hypothesized that the large volume that was received with a platelet transfusion uh, increased the 
ICPs and their hematoma expansion, therefore. So what would be our go-to agent in these patients who are on antiplatelets if we can't give a platelet transfusion? And the option would be desmopressin. And this is an agent that helps with uh, endothelial, endothelial adherence and aggregation of platelets. And it's commonly used in patients who have hemophilia or von Willebrand's disease and are bleeding. It's dosed at 0.3 to 0.4 micrograms per kilogram as a single IV bolus. And it is so associated with some adverse effects. However, these are commonly associated with continued use, not a single IV bolus. And that includes hyponatremia, some peripheral edema, or thrombosis. There have been a few small studies that have shown its use in uh, bleeding. And because of these studies, there is a low level of evidence recommendation in the critical care guidelines, which recommend the use of desmopressin for patients with antiplatelet-associated ICH. The first study listed here, Nidic and colleagues from 2014, included only 14 ICH patients who were on antiplatelets, and they received a single bolus of desmopressin, and then one hour later, they did a platelet function test, which showed improved function of the platelets one hour later. And they found that only two patients out of the 14 ended up with hematoma expansion on CT. The next study from 2015 included 408 ICH patients, and they found no difference in hematoma expansion when they received DDAVP or uh, standard care. However, they, not all patients were on antiplatelets at baseline, and they used lower doses. Some patients got 0.15 micrograms per kilogram, and some patients got 0.3. And then finally, the third study listed from 2018 was 143 patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage, and they found that administration of DDAVP was associated with decreased rebleeding by 43%. So I can see if this data is not completely compelling to have you want to give desmopressin for patients with an antiplatelet-related ICH. And luckily, in the last couple of years, we've had a little bit more data uh, published for this use. Feldman and colleagues published a single-center retrospective chart review in 2019, and they compared desmopressin versus standard care. They included patients who had a traumatic or spontaneous ICH if they had uh, antiplatelets on their home medication list if, or if EMS or family reported that they were taking an antiplatelet at home. They excluded patients who were on chronic anticoagulation if they didn't have a follow-up head CT within 24 hours or if they had some type of neurosurgical intervention, because it would be hard to assess hemat uh, hematoma expansion if they had uh, craniotomy. Their primary outcome was hematoma expansion of at least three milliliters on their follow-up CT and discharge modified Rankin scale. As you can see, they included 55 patients in the desmopressin group and 69 patients in the standard care group. The average age was 72, which, was, uh, which is expected for patients to be on antiplatelets. You expect them to be a little bit older. Uh, they had a good baseline GCS of 15, so they were relatively healthy. And looking at the ICH score, which is a measure of the severity of the ICH, with a 1 having an associated mortality of around 13%, and it goes all the way up to 4 having a mortality of almost 100%. And it was no difference between the two groups, but the um, median in the DDAVP group was 2 versus 1 in the standard care group. They received similar interventions. However, while not, not statistically significant, almost 47% in the desmopressin group did receive a platelet transfusion versus only 27% in the standard care group. A majority of patients were on aspirin monotherapy, 
versus only a few patients being on uh, clopidogrel monotherapy or dual antiplatelet therapy. The primary outcome, as I said, was hematoma expansion of at least three milliliters. And as you can see, there was a big difference between the patients who received uh, desmopressin versus standard care. Only 10% of patients in the desmopressin group had a hematoma expansion versus 36% in the standard care group, which I would argue is both clinically significant and statistically significant. However, that did not correlate to any patient-specific outcomes in the long term. They did not have any uh, difference in hospital mortality or modified Rankin scale at discharge. They did not see any adverse effects increase with the administration of desmopressin. There was no difference in sodium levels uh, that they measured or thrombotic events. So this is a very small study. It didn't really answer all of our questions. They included patients that both had traumatic bleeds and spontaneous intracranial hemorrhages, and a large proportion of patients did receive platelet transfusions. So I would like to see more data for this particular clinical question. And Barletta and colleagues published a study last year, kind of with a similar study design, with desmopressin versus standard care. They included, they did a sequential inclusion of patients from 2012 through 2018, and they included all patients who received uh, who had an ICH on antiplatelets, and they compared patients who received desmopressin versus standard care. They included patients only if they received a desmopressin dose of at least 0.3 micrograms per kilogram IV. Their primary outcome was hematoma expansion of at least 20% of the original uh, bleed size or a new hematoma on follow-up CT. As you can see, there were more patients in the desmopressin group than the standard care group, and that is due to the fact that two years into the study period, they changed their protocol so that all patients with traumatic brain injuries who were on an antiplatelet automatically got a dose of desmopressin. So that kind of became their standard of care, but they were still included in their desmopressin group. Again, the mean age was around 75 years old. They had a high baseline GCS, and similar amount of patients had multi-compartment head injury scores. Again, in this study, more patients in the desmopressin group had a platelet transfusion versus the standard care group. And this is interesting because these were patients with traumatic head bleeds, and those patients were excluded from the PATCH trial, so we don't really know how that affects their outcome and whether that would increase mortality or actually improve their outcomes. Again, more patients in this study uh, than any other group were on aspirin monotherapy, and Interestingly enough, the standard care group had a higher proportion of patients that were on oral anticoagulants, but the authors commented that they were adequately reversed uh, with prothrombin complex concentrate, and all of the patients that were included were on warfarin and also received vitamin K. So they commented that that was ne a negligible difference. Their primary outcome was hematoma expansion again. They looked at hematoma expansion of at least 20% and again saw a significant difference between the patients who received desmopressin versus standard care. And they also looked at expansion of at least 33%, which would be considered a catastrophic expansion in many cases. And again, that was uh, statistically significant between those who received desmopressin and the standard care group. Unfortunately, there was again no difference in the discharge disposition for these patients versus um, hematoma expansion. So preventing hematoma expansion didn't correlate with a decreased rate of patients having death or hospice at discharge. They did complete a multivariate analysis, which I thought was really interesting, and they just they discovered which patients would be responders to desmopressin. 
And based on their multivariate analysis, patients who are of younger age, so younger than 86 years old, are on low-dose monotherapy aspirin and have a non-complex head injury, so just bleeding in one compartment of the brain, would be a desmopressin responder. However, patients who are on any type of P2Y12 inhibitor or of older age would not respond to desmopressin and would have hematoma expansion no matter if you gave desmopressin or not. So that gives us some information about who maybe we should consider desmopressin in when they're in the recess bay. And it seems like patients who are going to do well are going to do, could do even better if you give them desmopressin instead of the alternative where we think patients are going to do bad because they're elderly, they're on dual antiplatelet therapy, we should give them everything. They may not do well regardless. So these two studies had some similar weaknesses and strengths. They were small, retrospective. They had a heterogeneous patient population, and almost all of the patients were receiving aspirin. So we can't really draw any conclusions about our P2Y12 inhibitors uh, from these studies. And a large proportion of patients were receiving platelet transfusions, and it's hard to tell how that affects our outcomes, knowing that it, caught, that it had very severely uh, bad outcomes in the PATCH trial, we don't know if that affected things in this trial, these trials. There were some promising effects of desmopressin in that it did decrease hematoma expansion, which is one of our major goals of care in the management of ICH, but it didn't correlate with any of our patient-specific outcomes. We don't know what the long-term effects of this are. If it's not improving our modified Rankin scale, uh, what is the point of giving it? We need further studies on our P2Y12 inhibitors and in patients who aren't receiving platelet tr transfusions. There is a randomized controlled trial that's in phase two right now. It was supposed to complete enrollment at the end of 2020, but I'm not sure how COVID affected that, but it's called the DASH trial, um, and it's comparing desmopressin versus standard care in ICH patients. So that brings us to our next Pull Everywhere question. A, pa a patient on dual antiplatelet therapy presents to your emergency department with spontaneous ICH. What therapy do you recommend? You can respond at pollev.com slash mayorx, or you can text mayorx to 22333, or use your app on your phone or tablet. Okay, so this question was kind of meant to get a gamut of answers. There's not really a wrong answer up here. Um, the one unit of platelet transfusion could be considered if this patient had a severe enough bleed and needed to go to the OR. I would not argue with uh, the neurosurgeons over them giving a platelet transfusion in someone who needs to go to the OR. I would probably give desmopressin regardless, so I think answer B is definitely correct up front without knowing what the final plan is going to be. The combination of the two, a large majority of patients in these retrospective studies did get desmopressin and uh, platelet transfusion, so I think that could be correct as well. And then none of the above, I think, could absolutely be correct because these uh, intervention, the intervention with desmopressin hasn't been shown to have any effect on our modified Rankin scale or death at discharge. So, or death or function at discharge. So I think any of these could have been correct, and I just wanted to prove that this is a controversial topic and uh, there's a lot of things to take into consideration. So moving on to another controversial topic and treatment therapy would be tranexamic acid in trauma. And this is an antifibrinolytic therapy that's used for a lot of indications. However, in trauma, it's used for its ability to uh, inhibit the activation of plasminogen to plasmin, ultimately stabilizing your blood clots, preventing exsanguination. It's dosed as one gram over 10 minutes as a bolus and then infused over eight hours thereafter. 
uh, it does have some very uncommon side effects of thrombosis or seizure. And we have some landmark trials that have shown its effectiveness in our trauma population. The first being the CRASH-2 trial from 2010, and they showed in a very large trial that there was reduced mortality, which was further reduced if it was given within the first three hours of, uh, since injury, and a potential harm if given outside that three-hour time frame. And followed by the MATTERS trial from 2012, and this was primarily combat injury patients, and they found that there was a further improved mortality, especially in patients who were receiving massive transfusion protocol. They did see a potential increase in VTE rates, but none of those caused death. And they also showed a potential increase in seizure in that study. And then getting back to our neuro population was the TITCH-2 trial in 2018. And they found that um, studying tranexamic acid in their ICH population, again, showed decreased hematoma expansion, but no difference in functional outcomes or death at 90 days. So that brings us all the way to 2019 with the CRASH-3 trial, which has been a long time coming. It's a multi-center randomized placebo-controlled trial of tranexamic acid in TBI patients specifically. The CRASH-2 trial and the MATTERS trial excluded patients who had any signs or symptoms of TBI, and this trial excludes patients who have any multi-trauma but included patients with TBI. They had to have a GCS of less than 12 or ICH on CT indicating TBI. Their primary outcome was in-hospital head injury uh, death, in-hospital head injury-related death at 28 days. So, like I said, this is a very large trial. They included patients from 175 hospitals over six and a half years. Originally, when they designed the trial, they were including patients who had injury within eight hours. And then in 2016, they changed it to include patients who had injury within only three hours based on a subgroup analysis of the matter of the CRASH-2 trial and another trial which showed only improved outcomes if given within three hours. So it was primarily male patients who were young, uh, which is common for trauma studies in general. And they gave the drug within, or they enrolled patients within two hours, which is very, very fast for a randomized controlled trial. And they did a subgroup analysis of patients who had mild to moderate TBI with a GCS of 9 to 15, which made up about 60% of the patients in the study. So like I said, their primary outcome was head injury-related death in patients who presented within three hours. And they found no difference for patients who received TXA who, or versus placebo. There was about a moderate difference between placebo and TXA, but it was not statistically significant because this was such a large trial. You needed to see a big difference. They also did a subgroup analysis of patients who were likely to have a poor outcome regardless. So if they had a GCS of three, or if they had bilateral unreactive pupils on presentation, they excluded those patients and looked at it again, and there was still no difference. They did, however, look at that subgroup analysis of patients who had mild to moderate TBI with a GCS of 9 to 15, or with patients who had a, both reactive pupils, so considering that a good outlook sign, so probably a mild TBI. And those are the patients that they found actually did well with TXA. So they were the ones who had decreased head injury-related death versus placebo. For the safety outcomes, they had... Um, included more patients for the safety analysis versus the primary outcome analysis because this also included patients who were enrolled within eight hours instead of just three hours. So there were over 1,200 
12,000 patients in this safety analysis, and they had extremely low rates of thrombosis and seizure, only 1.6 patients for thrombosis in each group versus, and 3% in the seizures, which is a common side effect for TBI anyway. They also did a time-dependent uh, analysis of patients who received TXA to see if there was a uh, time-dependent uh, effect of TXA uh, benefit. And this was based on the CRASH-2 trial, which showed that the faster that you received TXA, the more benefit that there was. And they found that there was uh, still only benefit in the mild to moderate group, and the faster that they received TXA, the better the benefit was. And that is shown on this graph. Let me orient. The y-axis is the risk ratio. The x-axis is time. So the faster you get it, the lower the risk ratio is. And that is maintained with the mild to moderate uh, head injury, but is not seen with a severe injury. So no matter when patients receive TXA for severe injury, there was no benefit of TXA. So this is the largest study that we've seen so far, and it's probably one of the largest trials that we'll see for intracranial hemorrhage or TBI in general. Um, the, because of that, we can see, we can do great subgroup analyses and draw conclusions from them because it, they're well-matched cohorts. The greatest benefit was seen in that subgroup analysis of mild to moderate TBI. However, they did not look at any functional outcomes, so there was a difference in mortality, but we don't know what their modified ranking scale was at discharge. What if it was five? For me, that would not be a good functional outcome, and I wouldn't want that. I did like that they did a time-dependent analysis that I know that we need to be grabbing TXA in the recess bay, not waiting until they get up to the ICU after the OR, um, and knowing when it's important to give it. And they saw no increase in clot risk in this huge trial of over 12,000 patients with ATBI, which is something that comes up a lot with TXA, uh, the clot risk, the clot risk. This gives evidence showing that there is no increased clot risk. But the big question that comes up is how this fits with our other trauma data regarding TXA. The CRASH-2 and MATTERS trial excluded patients with TBI. This TBI study excluded patients who had extracranial in injuries. Can we put the two together and have patients who have multi-trauma and give them TXA? I would argue yes. They both showed benefit if you gave it within three hours and had low risk of thrombosis. So that would be my recommendation. So I want to switch gears a little bit and switch to talking about a different type of bleed, which is an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. And this is a uh, disease state that has a high rate of mortality. 15% of patients don't even make it to the hospital with an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. And there's a mortality rate of up to 60% in patients who do make it to the hospital. It has a high rate of complications, including re-bleeding that can happen within three hours of the sentinel bleed, uh, delayed cerebral ischemia and vasospasm, which can cause permanent brain damage, and then hydrocephalus requiring drainage of CSF fluid. Ultimate treatment is uh, aneurysm securement, which happens with surgical clipping of the aneurysm or with coiling in the interventional radiology suite. Pharmacologically, before the aneurysm is secured, we do tight blood pressure control, and then there is some controversial data around whether administration of antifibrinolytics like TXA should be done. There is some old data showing that administration of antifibrinolytics could decrease your rate of re-bleeding if it's given early enough. However, that is at the cost of increased vasospasm and cerebral, delayed cerebral ischemia. There was one study in 2008 that showed that if you only gave the antifibrinolytic for less than 72 hours, that you could decrease the rate of re-bleeding without increasing your rate of uh, cerebral ischemia. 
So based on this, from 2008 until now, we had no further data. The recommendations from the guidelines were that if you were going to give TXA or aminocoproic acid, that you should limit it to less than 72 hours or until your aneurysm was secured. And that is reasonable to do that. So now we do have more data. Luckily, in 2021, this year, the ULTRA trial came out, which is a multi-center randomized open-label trial of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage patients receiving ultra-early TXA. And they received one gram over 10 minutes, followed by one gram infusions over eight hours, continuously for 24 hours until they had their aneurysm secured. And then the other group was standard care. They included patients only if they had aneurysm symptoms for less than 24 hours, and they had to have an aneurysmal pattern on their CT, which is a very typical pattern. They excluded patients who had any history of hypercoagulability because of the risk of thrombosis with TXA. And their primary outcome was a modified Rankin scale at six months. So as you can see for our baseline characteristics, the patients were primarily female and a little bit younger than some of our other studies with an average age of 58. And this is quite common for a subarachnoid hemorrhage patient population. A majority of patients had coiling as their primary treatment for their aneurysm about 67% in the TXA group. 20% had clipping, and as you can see, that doesn't add up to 100%. Some patients never had any treatment for their aneurysm, or they never identified one on their angiography. I wanted to point out some of the time frames for this study, which are really interesting. The average time from symptom onset to CT was 93 minutes. That means from the time that this person had their thunderclap headache and thought, oh my gosh, I need to get to the ED, and got a CT was less than two hours. They didn't just pop a Tylenol and think, I need to drink a cup of coffee, oh my gosh. They went to the ED. So that's very, very quick, um, and it's probably a reflection of the selection of patients in this study. The time from symptom onset to TXA administration was 185 minutes, so just another 90 minutes from that CT until they could get steady drug to the patient. And then from CT to intervention, so actually getting that aneurysm secured or going to the OR was 14 hours, which is very quick. To give you an idea for patients here, if they uh, present with an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage during the day, they may get that secured that day. However, if they present overnight, it could be 24 hours before they get it secured. And here we just have some baseline severity of illness scores that are very specific to subarachnoid hemorrhage. The first one is the World Federation of Neurosurgical Society score, and it ranges from one to five, and it's based on their neurologic function when they present, one being the best, five being the worst. And then the bottom one is the Fisher score, which ranges from one to four. They had no one with a one, because that would mean that they had very little blood on their CT. Four means that they have blood in multiple compartments on their CT, and it is a uh, correlates with mortality. So. They had some actually pretty sick patients with a high risk of mortality um, with having over 60% of their patients with a Fisher score of four. But they were well matched between the two groups, which is the most important thing. So for the primary outcome, they looked at modified Rankin scale at six months, and they saw no difference. They dichotomized their modified Rankin scale into a, lumped it into zero to three. So they considered a modified Rankin of zero to three to be a good outcome. And just to give you an idea, a three is that you can do some of your daily activities alone, but you probably need a walker. You probably need someone to come into your house and give you some help to clean or do some of your daily activities. 
and they saw no difference between the TXA group and standard care uh, when looking at the modified Rankin scale of zero to three. They also did a secondary analysis of a modified Rankin scale of zero to two, and they found that the uh, standard care group actually had a better proportion of patients who had a modified Rankin scale of zero to two, which is interesting. And then they also looked at an ordinal analysis of the modified Rankin scale. So you just, to orient you to this, they look, the top row is TXA, the bottom row is standard care. So you can see how many patients fell into each modified Rankin scale at six months. So four patients had in the TXA group and the uh, standard care group had a modified Rankin scale of zero. And then all the way to six being death, there's 27 patients in the TXA group and 24 in the standard care group. So the way to look at it is to see the shift in uh, the difference. And there was no statistical difference between those two groups. For our adverse events, there were a few major adverse events of interest because in previous studies, there was a difference between the rebleeding rate and your cerebral ischemia rate. Uh, and they found no difference in rebleeding or delayed cerebral ischemia in the TXA group and the standard care group. There is also no difference in thrombosis or seizures between the two groups. Mortality and at 30 days and six months was uh, tw around 22 to 27%, and there was no difference between the two groups. So based on this study, it's the largest study that we have for this clinical question, and it, I think it finally gave us the answer of whether we need to be giving these patients tranexamic acid before uh, getting their aneurysms secured. The biggest strength was that they had ultra-early intervention, if we know that the rebleeding most likely occurs within three hours, they were getting it right at three hours, 185 minutes from their time of initial symptom onset. And I don't think that it's really realistic to get it, uh, give TXA to these patients much sooner than that. And they're showing that there was no benefit. They assessed functional outcome, which I think is important as a primary outcome in our neurological studies. But they didn't look at vasospasm, and they didn't assess the cause of death in a lot of these patients, which I think would have been interesting outcomes. But based on this study showing no difference between TXA and standard care, I would probably withhold TXA in my aneurysmal subarachnoid patients. So now we have our third poll everywhere question. Which of the following patients should receive TXA one gram IV over 10 minutes in the resuscitation bay? A patient with an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage with symptoms that started three days ago, a patient with an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage on warfarin for PE, a patient with a traumatic subdural hemorrhage with a GCS of 13, or a patient with polytrauma, a subarachnoid hemorrhage, and a GCS of three who is intubated. Okay, I agree with the majority of people with C. I think A would be wrong because the symptom onset was three days ago. We know that rebleeding happens very early on after an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, B would be wrong because of the warfarin therapy for PE and the risk of thrombosis, the small risk of thrombosis with teranexamic acid, and these patients were likely excluded from a lot of the studies. C would be correct because of the traumatic injury with a GCS of 13, which is mild to moderate and would benefit based on the CRASH-3 trial. And then D would be wrong because of the low GCS and would not benefit based on the CRASH-3 trial. So we've gone through a lot of data today and hopefully made a lot of conclusions about which patients may benefit from desopressin and tranexamic acid. As we 
kind of learned antiplatelet use is ubiquitous in our community and it's associated with significant morbidity and mortality in patients who develop an ICH. So the judicious use of desmopressin for these patients may be, mitigate those adverse outcomes. Trauma patients who present with traumatic brain injury that's mild to moderate would likely benefit from a rapid administration of TXA in our resuscitation bay. And there is no long-term benefit of administering TPA for patients who, uh, or TXA, sorry, TXA for patients who present with an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage prior to aneurysm secure. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.